Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Elijah Gullett back to the program. Elijah, it hasn't been that long since we spoke, but for some people, they're going to be meeting you for the first time. Take just a moment here to tell us about yourself, both as a Young Voices contributor and some of the other hats that you wear. Yeah, so I'm a Young Voices commentator um, and writer. Um, I've written historically on stuff like energy, environment, housing, urban development, that kind of you know, stuff as well as some free speech stuff. Um, outside of that, I've worked with the American Conservation Coalition as a branch leader working on um, expanding uh, free market environmental solutions to states like North Carolina and uh, developing their policy platform uh, in North Carolina. Uh, beyond that, I'm also a UNC Chapel Hill alum and studied urban planning and public policy. Okay. Well, you've got a full plate there, and uh, we've got a great topic to discuss here. This is an article you wrote for the Carolina Journal about uh, how nuclear energy, it's good for North Carolina, and the environment. i got to tell you, I'm encouraged when I hear this, because I know that uh, there there is definitely... Um, a move toward cleaner and renewable energy, and yet I still sometimes feel like nuclear energy gets uh, short shrift. Tell me what's going on with North Carolina, and, and why does it hold some promise, uh, not just for North Carolina, but maybe for, for other states as well, to follow suit? Yeah, so I'll try to avoid becoming a little too wonky about this issue. <laughs> but basically, the Public Utilities Commission of North Carolina, which regulates our energy um, sources, specifically Duke Energy mostly, uh, set up a couple years back some standards for uh, how much of like different energy sources had to make up a percentage of their overall energy production in North Carolina, right? Uh, with the goals of making most of that clean, or at the time, as they described, renewable energy. A more recent thing that came out of the North Carolina Senate, particularly from Senate Republicans, was a bill to change that language, not be renewable energies, but to be clean energy, with specific um, incentives to construct uh, nuclear energy and make it easier to build, reduce some of the regulatory barriers, and create um, a system for nuclear energy to become part of the bigger green energy push in North Carolina. Um, this is really important because nuclear energy, we already have several nuclear energy plants in North Carolina. It's already makes up about a third of energy production in the state and the majority of green energy sources in the state. Um, so it's actually already pretty well integrated into the energy grid, unlike a lot of uh, renewables that had historically been the preference of environmental groups. Wow. So, do environmental groups? I mean, there was a time when, when you know, the environmental movement really was pretty much in lockstep opposing nuclear energy. Have they come around? Have they come full circle to where it's it's actually you know nuclear energy is viable and they're willing to put their support behind it? So nationally, internationally, I've seen some positive moves in this direction to become increasingly pro-nuclear, but I don't think that's necessarily been borne out across each state. And I know that's especially true in North Carolina, where several of the major environmental groups, including places like Triangle 360 and um, the Environmental Working Group, have opposed this legislation as well as past pro-nuclear legislation on the grounds that nuclear energy is not is dangerous, uh, that it's not that environmentally friendly or as environmentally friendly as advocates might claim, and that it's basically unviable, instead arguing that we should be sticking strictly to renewables like wind and solar. Okay. And uh, let's let's talk about uh, some of the developments. I mean, sometimes, sometimes when people think nuclear energy, they're thinking, oh, man, 
massive, huge power plants, super expensive, super complicated. Uh, technology, though, has, has really opened some interesting doors, hasn't it? Yes. So in the article, I mentioned some of the developments um, that have happened in North Carolina over the past few months and uh, to develop what's called small modular reactors in the state. So instead of like that, like classic vision of like massive uh, silos almost, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> like I think that's what we have in our image, is like massive industrial plants uh, to produce nuclear energy. These would be much smaller uh plants that would not have as much land use impact would be much cheaper to get off the ground and resolve some of those concerns that environmentalists had. On top of that, they don't have the tailored risks. So even though nuclear energy is by and far one of the safest energy sources, the the risk is of it actually of actually um, any of the plants, you know, dissolving or uh, becoming dangerous is very low, especially in the United States. Um, these would even reduce those risks even further. Um, so in particular, I talk about some uh, developments in Wilmington to develop some SMRs, as they're called, uh, small modular reactors are referred to. Um, and one of the things that this legislation particularly would do would make that easier and create like a regulatory framework for those. So they have a way to get off the ground in North Carolina. So when we talk small modular reactors, I just want to kind of put this into perspective. Um, you know, if we think of the big three mile island style cooling towers, yeah. I mean, massive. You can see them for miles around. How big are, you know, would a, would a small modular reactor be? Yeah, I mean, theoretically, they could fit inside of normal size, you know, industrial building. Right. So you wouldn't have to use up any additional massive land use. I mean, just think about it in comparison to the solar plants that we know we've seen. I, I know we've probably all seen at this point that take up miles like football fields worth. It would be a fraction of that would actually have to be used for new uh, small modular reactors. Yeah, and where I live in southern Idaho, uh, wind turbines are, are really yeah. a thing. And and of course, the wind always blows here. So, you know, in, in a way it makes sense. But but people object to, you know, seeing these massive turbines going up everywhere. They worry about access to land and so forth. So I, I'm just... I never thought, I mean, I wasn't a hardcore, uh, you know, anti-nuke uh, activist, but I always had suspicions. Of course, I grew up, you know, during the era of Three Mile Island and, you know, the movie The China Syndrome about a nuclear reactor melting down and whatnot. Um, so I always had that little little shadow of fear, but now it's, it's starting to sound like maybe that was a little bit misplaced. Mm-hmm. Definitely, yeah. Um, I think part of it has been the history of regulations in the United States have made it really difficult for us to have the kind of innovations that we're currently seeing. I mean, it's been basically through spite (laughs) that these companies have been able to be as innovative as they have been so far. Um, And I'm really hopeful that legislation like this can spur similar changes across the United States to make it easier to innovate and build uh, these reactors. And we can start to see a real, the tides really turn on this issue. So the the question that I that I just have to ask though Elijah, um, even these small modular reactors, can they meet the power requirements? I mean I I know California probably gets picked on a lot, but uh, we hear that well you know California has a tough time, especially during peak uh, energy usage periods of you know they have rolling brownouts and so forth. Um, are these reliable enough that uh, you know more states should be looking at them as as a way to to build a more dependable, more reliable power system? Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Nuclear energy in all its forms is a 24-7 energy source, unlike solar, which is dependent on when the sun is out uh, and requires some kind of battery solution to keep it viable, or the wind turbines, which require some kind of change in the climate. 
Um, and alongside battery generation, nuclear energy is 24-7. You can have them constantly running with constant staff working on them. And for small modular reactors, they can power up to about 20,000 homes at a time. So, but they're also much smaller. So it'd be much easier for like, for, say a town or a small city to have just a handful and make a difference on that front. What about affordability? Cause I know at the end of the day that a lot of people, okay, so what, what is it gonna cost though? Will my energy costs go drastically higher if, if we were to uh, incorporate, you know, a small modular reactor in our community? Yeah, so I think, especially in a state like North Carolina, uh, nuclear energy, especially small modular reactors, can really expand the supply of energy uh, in a way that's already connected to the grid and lower energy costs, especially in comparison to the renewable solutions currently being proposed. So a lot of these, like solar and wind, um, it's much harder to get, off them, get them off the ground. They don't produce as much energy. Like I said, they're also less reliable overall. So you have the risk for more frequent and sudden spikes in prices based on that supply of energy because of its inconsistency in a way that nuclear energy would not have that problem. Nice. So it sounds like things are maybe moving, you know, in a very positive direction for North Carolina. Are there other states that are perhaps watching, waiting to see if, if it works out well for them? I mean, do, is North Carolina basically, are they being the pioneers in this effort? Um, I'm a little less aware of other states on this issue, but I know that we're definitely ahead of the curve, especially in many blue states in the United States. So places like California that have been really oppositional to recent nuclear energy sources and have even uh, worked to shut down more recent ones. So I think we're actually at the forefront of making clean energy feasible, especially in the Southeast. Okay, we've got just under a minute here, but Elijah, I have to ask you, you mentioned regulation before as being one of the things that slows this process down. Um, is there any kind of reform happening in, in the regulatory sense? Yeah, so like I said, in North Carolina in particular, this legislation would reduce some of those regulatory barriers, particularly permitting barriers to constructing new uh, nuclear energy sources. Um, on top of that, as I think we've heard about the debt ceiling deal, there is some move to uh, reform permitting the permitting process for clean energy and other energy projects in the United States. I'm hopeful that that legislation could be expanded to the nuclear energy space, although it is a distinct space because of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. So it would probably require some additional legislation. All right. We are visiting with Elijah Gullett. He's a writer and commentator for Young Voices. And Elijah, for people who wish to follow you on social media, where's the best place to find you? You can find me at Market Urbanists with an S at the end on Twitter.com. I post all my articles and my regular thoughts. Okay. Great to catch up with you again. Thank you. All right. Thank you for having me on. Bye. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. I'm happy to welcome Jeremiah Ludwig back to the program. Uh, Jeremiah, it's good to have you here. For people meeting you for the first time, take just a second to tell us about yourself. Good afternoon, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here again. Uh, my name is Jeremiah Ludwig. I'm an economist out here in Washington, D.C. Uh, I work on various policy problems and uh, questions with regard to urban economics in the region and in the nation. And I'm looking at an article you wrote for the Delaware Valley Journal, uh, What My Experience Being Homeless Taught Me About Compassion. And Jeremiah, as I read, as I read this commentary, um, I got to admit, I kind of recognized uh, some places in my life where um, 
my compassion has definitely been lacking. Let's first of all, let's start with with your story a little bit. We'll talk about the larger issue, but tell me about your experience um, being homeless. Yeah. So a few years ago, I was in a, a rather tough spot. Um, I had just gotten out of a, a long relationship uh, and ended up getting rather depressed for a while, and it cost me my job. Unable to make rent, I ended up becoming homeless for uh, about a month, a little bit over a month. Um, it was a very difficult time of my life. It was down in uh, Tucson, Arizona. Um, very, very hot. It's like May. Uh, wandering the streets had my car but it wasn't running anymore so i kind of like parked it on this parking lot and i had to kind of walk everywhere um it was overall a positive experience for me obviously it's difficult at the time but looking back on it it taught me a lot uh just about how the world works and it gave me some perspective on things that i desperately needed at the time and uh it let me appreciate that some people in in the world have a, a far far worse time of life than i do uh, and it gave me some perspective on my own suffering that I that I desperately needed back then. Something you point out here that, that just really hit me was how you learned a lot about uh, compassion as as a homeless individual. Um, talk to me about this. Even people who say, "Oh no, I have great compassion for the homeless," our actions don't always match that uh, lofty ideal, though, do they? Yeah. Well, I've been on both sides of the sidewalk, so to speak. Um, on the on the homeless man, man side of the sidewalk, um, you need compassion. You need people to recognize you as a human being. Uh, a lot of homelessness is driven by mental health problems. Um, a, a lot of it is just reinforced by mental health problems, by social isolation, by being forced into corners where you you only associate with people who are bad influence on you, and just make your situation even worse. And it's vitally important that citizens and regular people can at least recognize you as a human being and, and you can feel like there's a pathway out of it for you. A lot of the time, though, people just completely ignore the homeless. We've kind of trained ourselves to do that. Um, and being having been on both sides of the street, I, I kind of understand both sides of the perspective. From being homeless, I understand the importance of having people at least just look at you, how important that is just for your own psychology. But at the same time, I understand the aversion that a lot of people who are walking down the street feel when they walk by the homeless. Um, and really, the, what the article is about is not just compassion. It's about being able to actually express compassion. Because it's one thing to feel like, well, I should care about you. I should recognize you as a human being in a technical sense. But to actually have the courage to step out and show that compassion it requires a bit of courage for one thing, but it also requires expectation. It requires you to have some standards. Uh, otherwise, you're going to end up putting your goodwill on the line. And I'm going to be honest with you, some homeless people are going to betray that. And if you're not working off of a standard, you're going to feel like, well, this was a waste of my time. Why did I do that? Uh, I'm never going to do it again. And you're going to end up passing by the opportunities to help the people who you genuinely could help. You share an experience that happened to you. And this is this is well past your, your homeless phase, but where you had an opportunity to help a homeless individual. Tell me about that experience. Yeah. So this is about seven, eight months ago. Um, I was working in downtown D.C. Um, and there's this fast food joint that I always like to go to uh, where I get lunch. Uh, one evening I was uh, out there and uh, a homeless guy approached me and he just said hi. And I always make a, a very explicit effort to, you know, it, even if I have no money to give or nothing I can do at the moment to help, I always recognize, say hi, ask their name, 
um, and, and be friendly as I would with anybody else. Uh, and so I did. And he asked if he if I could buy him some lunch. Um, I always prefer it, uh, when homeless folks ask me to buy them some lunch. Um, I feel like it's a very tangible thing that I can do. And uh, I that's I think it's a good way to uh, help people if I can. And so I told him I would. But we went into the, the fast food joint and uh, we'd been in, in line for just a couple minutes when the store uh the person who I, I'm pretty sure she's probably the just shift manager uh, started yelling at us and telling us to leave um, and that she wasn't going to serve the homeless man. Um, he was furious instantly. He completely blew a gasket and he was just started screaming and yelling obscenities at her. And they ended up calling the police and he ran off. Um, it was a, an ugly situation um, that I guess it kind of just is a, a perfect example of what happens when all this uh, uncertainty and aversion just boils up and explodes, and that that anger at not being recognized and treated as the regular citizen is expressed on one hand, while at the same time just the uncertainty and aversion that citizens have toward the homeless is expressed on the other hand, and it just ends up this, this massive disconnect and, and just rage on both sides. It really struck me how you describe how when you said, yeah, I'll, I'll be happy to you know buy you some lunch. Um, you talk about the light that came into his eyes, the gratitude that, that he experienced and how quickly it left the, the second that this uh, store employee started shouting at him and telling him, get out of here, get out, you know. Yeah. Well, one thing to bear in mind is that, you know, the uncertainty that we deal with when interacting with other people is not unique to just homeless people. You know, every day when you go out and you meet new people and you have people that could be potentially friends or partners or, or coworkers, whoever it might be, there's always a degree of uncertainty. People can lie to you. They can use you. They can betray you. And you have to work with expectations of, of fair treatment when you're dealing with people in regular society. And we have a tendency when it comes to the politics of homelessness and even just the politics of poverty in the U.S. sometimes, uh, especially in very left-wing circles such as I live in here in D.C., uh, there can be a tendency to infantilize uh those expectations and say, well, no, there should be no expectations. Everything should be given as an entitlement. But that entitlement disempowers your citizens, and it takes away the tools that they need to actually express their compassion. And it makes it so even in the most progressive circles where if you polled everybody, 90% of people would say, yes, I care about the the poor. I care about the homeless a great deal. But they won't look them in the eye because they've taken away the tool that they need in order to actually have the courage to express what what they feel and what they believe. Um, and I think that's a mistake, and I would hope that people could learn that and be willing to at least have some minimal expectations so that they can protect themselves enough to be willing to help others. Right. I, I like, too, that you point out in your article about, uh, you know, we often outsource our, our sense of uh, compassion maybe to, to institutions. Well, that's why I pay taxes, you know, so there's programs to help the these, uh, you know, the less fortunate out. But uh, it's like switching off your conscience you know, it, it makes it easier to get struck with that that strange blindness when you encounter, say, a homeless person, and suddenly it's like, oh, I don't, I don't see you. I don't, I don't see you anywhere. Um, tell me, if if you had to summarize, what the homeless need most from the average person they encounter on the street, what would it be? Recognition, I think, is at the foundation of it. Really. There's limits to what you can actually do as a single individual. Uh, I think that there's a role for institutions to play when it comes to helping the homeless. Um, I'm not uh, quite complete over the board uh, libertarian when it comes to that particular topic. Um, But 
I think that it's I think that it's the thing that every single individual can do at relatively low cost if they have the courage to actually do it is just recognize them, look them in the eye, say good morning, say good evening, little things like that. It makes a huge difference in just helping them get through their day. So simple human connection, the acknowledgement that you're not just a, you know, you're not just a, you know, trash bag or something sitting there, but you're an actual person. And a lot of the time you're going to find that underneath the rags, there's actually a decent human being sitting there whom you might actually be able to help in unique ways, but you're, you're not going to figure that out if you don't actually try and meet that person. Uh, man, Jeremiah, I appreciate you. Uh, I appreciate you sharing this experience. I'm sure that it wasn't uh, an easy one. I'm grateful that you're beyond your homeless, you know, uh, your homeless experience. But uh, thanks for, for taking the time to write this down. How can people find you? How can they follow you on social media? The best place you can find me is going to be on Twitter at Ludwig underline Jeremiah. Um, it's mostly urban economic stuff on there, but uh, the urban economics problem ties in very closely to the homelessness problem. So. And we are back on Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Gary and Frankel back to the program. Gary, I know you have been, you've been a busy guy the last few months and um, anything involving education keeps you busy. Uh, let's, let's first of all, for, for the sake of people meeting you for the first time, tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, thanks for having me on again, Brian. Uh, Well, besides my role as a Young Voices contributor and being the regional leader for the Southern United States, I'm also an incoming PhD student in PK-12 Education Administration at uh, Texas A&M University, where I focus on uh, education policy, the humanities, civics education, all that fun stuff. Uh, I also used to be an education reporter, so I got some stories on that front, too. Well, I know that uh, school choice is making a lot of headlines across the nation. Um, I understand that uh, Texas, among those states, uh, I'm looking at your article. It could be a long summer for school choice in Texas. Why is that? Yeah. So contrary to its reputation as a very conservative, independent minded, ruby red state, Uh, Every inch for school choice in Texas over the last 25 years really has been an absolute struggle. Uh, As of now, Texas still does not uh, have any private school choice programs. All efforts to do so during the regular legislative session have failed. Uh, However, all of Texas's current leadership, um, most importantly, the governor and the lieutenant governor, are fully intend to get some kind of private school choice program passed. And uh, the governor is willing to call as many special sessions of the Texas legislature that he has to in order to get it done. Wow. Now, we're, we're facing something similar where I live in, in Idaho, where things looked very promising at the beginning of the legislative session. But uh, there were just a few key interests. In fact, I think, it, you know, in cases like this, it comes down to maybe one or two votes that, uh, that are the difference between success and not. Um, who are the forces that are operating against school choice right now in Texas? I'm going to I'm going to throw this out there right now. Teachers union, perchance. <laughs> well, teachers unions are not as strong in Texas as they are in some other states around the country because they are barred by state law from engaging in collective bargaining. So while they're still around, they're not nearly as powerful as they would be in a state like California or Illinois or New York, 
So what teachers unions have decided to do instead is pump campaign funded for rural Republicans. And what this has done is create this odd anti-school choice coalition between some urban Democrats and some rural Republicans um, who oppose school choice for very, very different reasons, but in this area have seen their interests converge and they've been a very effective legislative block for decades now. And that block was once again very powerful in this legislative session. Now, will they be more powerful than the governor and the lieutenant governor who have who have a lot of authority in this area? That remains to be determined. I don't think so. But as I said in the article, it'll be a long summer. So with the, the governor's in your court, though, right? I mean, the governor is, is on board for school choice. But yes. uh, Wow. It, you know, this this sounds so familiar. It sounds like this is this is the kind of scenario that plays out in many of these states. What's the difference in those states that have actually succeeded this year? It seems like there's been a lot of success stories. Yeah, there have been in states like uh, Utah and West Virginia, for instance, you have a lot of rural support for educational choice. Um, some of the dynamics in those states are different uh, from Texas. And the biggest one, uh, in my opinion, and this generally shows up quite a bit in political discussions and message boards, and it sounds weird on the surface, but it's high school football. Oh, (laughs) a lot of rural Texas Republicans are extremely concerned that a comprehensive school choice program, both in terms of private school choice or open enrollment policies, would uh, damage the quality of high school football in the state. Uh, I have never seen evidence put forward in support of that assertion. That doesn't mean there is any of that doesn't mean there isn't any. I just haven't seen it. And uh, but it's a very common argument and a very real concern for some of these communities where the schools are the primary employers and the football team is a major community institution. But I mean, as the old mantra goes, if you like your school, you can keep your school. Wow. Well, I have enough friends who live in Texas that uh, it seems like those who've told me um, there are very few things taken more seriously than high school football. (laughs) So that rings absolutely true. Yeah. And one of the only uh, and two of the only things taken more seriously than high school football are college football and the NFL. (laughs) Yep. So talk to me about parents. Do do parents have much influence in this in this uh, matter? Or is this something that really comes down to who has the more effective lobbyists? It's a bit of both. Uh, Historically, it really has come down to who has the most effective lobbyist. But one change that we saw in 2022 Uh, that was very different than previous years, is that you had well-funded, sometimes incumbent Republican legislators who were in opposition to school choice get primaried out by a grassroots movement that was largely supported by parents and families who were broadly more supportive of school choice. Um, we're only, we're less than a year away from the Texas primaries in 2024. So even if school choice doesn't get passed in some capacity this year in a special session, uh, you could see another primary wave next year, put even more pro school choice representatives into the Texas legislature, um, as a result from primary oppositions, because these have been some very competitive, sometimes very nasty races lately, and they've sort of circled around this one issue. Wow. 
And and you you mentioned again those special sessions the governor can call. Do, is there is there a point where the public says, okay, this is this is going nowhere, or does that sound like will this be an effective tool for him if necessary to to call the legislature back into session as many times as it takes to get that thing moving? Yeah, as as I mentioned in my article, it's a tool that the governor has used to great effect uh, before. Uh, during the last legislative session, the governor was trying to ram through uh, an election integrity bill, and it caused the de- many of the state's Democrats to walk out, have this highly publicized trip to Washington, D.C., whole lot of media hullabaloo. But the governor just kept calling special sessions, and then the Democrats ran out of money. They had to come back to Austin, and then the election integrity bill was passed, and the public was broadly supportive of the governor in this effort. And this was before he won re-election by 11%. Wow. So now you have a governor that was just re-elected by 11% last fall for an issue that's even more popular than than election and integrity was. There's very little political risk for the governor in this area. He can just keep calling special sessions for as long as he wants, and he probably will. Interesting. So um, are other states watching Texas and learning from Texas? I'm, 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 for instance, I got my fingers crossed. Maybe Idaho is is keeping an eye on what's going on there and, and, and maybe taking some some of the, you know, the lessons away from there. Um, is it better to get a partial victory than to only hold out? You know, we want the whole shebang and nothing less. That was talked about in the state legislature. There was an effort to bring about a limited school school choice bill, uh, but the governor said he would veto it. So it seems like the operation in Texas is uh, all or nothing right now. Uh, Based on previous history, uh, as far as the special sessions go, my guess is that the result will eventually be all, but... Who knows? Nobody really does. All we know is that it's going to take a while. Wow. Well, I wish you the very best. I, you know, for for the sake of people, we got about a minute left here. For people who are on the fence about school choice, why why is this one of the defining issues right now? Why does it matter that uh, that parents be able to direct their child's education better? Absolutely. Not only is it a longstanding principle and constitutional law that parents are and ought to be the primary drivers of a child's education. It's also important because sometimes a particular model or system or ideology that's present in a particular school may not be right for every family that would have otherwise attended that school. And because of that, it's important for parents to not only have the legal ability to exercise their choice, but also the practical ability to exercise choice, especially if they're not already wealthy. And that's the key, I, you know, because so many times I've heard opponents say, well, this is only going to favor the wealthy. But um, no, really, this, this is about making sure that everybody, regardless of their zip code, whatever neighborhood they're in, has the ability to, to make choices. And if the school is not a good fit for their kid to, to say, nah, we'll, we'll go somewhere else. Yep. The wealthy already have choice. Well said. All right. We're talking with uh, Gary Frankel with Young Voices. Uh, Gary, people who want to follow you, follow your writing or follow you on social media, what's the best way to go about that? Easiest way to connect with me would be Twitter at F-R-A-N-K-E-L-G-A-R-I-O-N. All right. Any any other states uh, that we should keep an eye on for uh, for this to be a big battle? 
Uh, I think as far as this legislative session goes, uh, all quiet on the Western Front except for Texas. That's the one to watch. Okay. Well, I look forward to the next time we get to talk. Hopefully, get some good news. Thanks, Gary. <laughs> we'll see. Thanks, Brian. Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment of Moving Forward with Young Voices. I'm happy to welcome a familiar voice back to the program. That would be Tamana Debozorgi. She, uh, Tamana, you, you've you've been on here a lot of times, but I know there are people meeting you for the first time. Tell us just a little bit about yourself. Uh, it's great to be back, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. Um, my name is Tamana Debozorgi, and you pronounce it absolutely perfectly. Uh, I'm currently a uh, an innovation fellow with Young Voices. I focus mostly on writing about telecommunications industry, national security, and cybersecurity, which actually is what I focus on right now at George Washington University Law School, uh, where I study national security law. Wow, you have uh, you have really been busy since well from the very first time we spoke but it sounds like you are going on to some really great things and I have an article here in front of me from the Washington Examiner that you wrote about how the uh, the internet is is something that students need to succeed and that the Congress can do something about it set the stage for me about uh, what 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 all does this entail in the past few years, especially during the pandemic, we have heard a lot about digital digital divide and how a lot of students across the United States did not have access to reliable internet while they were studying at home. And that created a lot of problems for parents, for students, and also for school districts. But on the other hand, this brought a really big issue in front of legislators that we need to do something about this because right now what we're facing is there are many students across the United States that although the pandemic is over, still do not have access to reliable wireless, given that now our education is heavily reliant on internet access and things like that. But what is even more interesting is, well, the government has tried different methods and models to address that by giving uh, funding to telecom companies to eventually be able to create these like grant programs. And also a lot of uh, companies were able to provide many um, free devices or even uh, wireless uh, access for students living in rural America. However, one thing which we don't think about always is that internet or just wireless in general is a fung- it's, it's not just a fungible a good, uh, we have limited internet, believe it or not. <laughs> uh, there's this thing called the spectrum, the broadband, which um, which the government has to auction off to wireless companies so they can build their technology on top of it, such as like 5G or even later on, hopefully we enter to 6G. And, and so right now, what the issue we're having is um, the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, which is the agency in charge uh, does not have the authority to auction off more spectrum to wireless companies so they can further increase their capacity to offer internet services to consumers. So the prices are still going high, although the demand is not dropping. I mean, we still need internet. And that has also been perpetuating this digital divide, especially for students. 
Wow. Now, see, I'm someone who lives in a rural area of America, and so I can kind of sympathize with uh, you know what it's like to have limited options uh, for for internet. Um, how how deeply is the the FCC involved as far as you know? Um, I guess what I'm asking is, is that is that spectrum very very limited, or is it is it something that's basically a wide open frontier? So spectrum is the, the spectrum policy is a little complicated. It's actually uh, there is like an international order to it, but each country gets a, like a certain amount of broadband, uh, and the FCC is the agency uh, who which has the authority to decide who gets how much uh, broadband. For example, you are a radio host. You have a, a certain part of the spectrum that you use for your radio show. And same thing goes for telecom companies. They have a portion of this spectrum that they use to give uh, internet access. And so FCC has always had the authority to auction off spectrum, but this authority lapsed on March after 30 years and this has hit, brought a lot of anxiety to wireless industry because without FCC having this auctioning authority, well, we there is no way to ensure that there will be growth or competitiveness in the wireless industry. And for example, CTIA has warned policymakers that uh, if FCC cannot move fast on auctioning spectrum, a lot of wireless providers are not able to innovate in this space because they don't know how much uh, broadband they're getting, and therefore that could actually be very crucial uh, for uh, you know our uh, global uh, competitiveness with China that is right now stepping up in 5G technology. They they are using their spectrum way more than the United States, and right now Congress is in a gridlock. <laughs> we, they haven't decided who gets what, and that's really concerning. So. Um I'm coming at this as a total neophyte. I don't, I don't understand a whole lot about the spectrum. But is is it more of a product of like the population of an area, um, you know, where, where China is using a great deal of it? Does that have to do directly? Is it directly related to the number of of users that they have? No, that is something which the governments decide on how much they want to allocate to uh, whatever agency or industry or company. For example, the Department of Defense has large portion of our spectrum, which they use for building radios and also uh, uh, other like space technologies even. Uh, and FCC makes sure that the Department of Defense gets their chunk for their needs. On the other hand, uh, it, it is up to the agency, it is up to the FCC and also Congress to determine which industry they want to prioritize, whether if, if, if they want to give more spectrum to wireless, to private companies like Verizon, AT&T, T-Mobile, or if they want to keep giving it to, uh, for example, Department of Defense, if they need to ramp up some uh, wireless innovation in that part of our uh, uh, telecommunications industry. So do we need to do some streamlining on the regulatory side then in order to uh, to make sure those auctions are taking place quickly enough to keep up with demand? Yes, the first thing we need to do, Congress must make sure that FCC's authority is renewed because otherwise FCC cannot give more wireless ability to telecom companies so they can actually increase their supply for uh, wireless access for, for example, for rural areas. Because as I said, this is spectrum is a requirement for building more internet infrastructure. And without that, wireless companies cannot do that. 
Right now, the industry is asking Congress and is also asking the FCC to step up and make sure that they get more uh, broadband. And uh, But however, Congress has not been able to renew FCC's auction authority. And therefore, we do not have uh, better and more reliable internet access as the demand keeps growing, especially in rural America, given that a lot of students, especially K through 12 students, are really need this technology. And uh, they don't, they can't just wait around for Congress to um, to get through their negotiation. They have to act really fast because our K through 12 students are innovators and entrepreneurs of the future who will be leading our nation very soon. And we need to set them up for success and having access to reliable Internet is extremely important for them. Well, it's, it sure feels as though internet has come a long way. And I know uh, my wife is a public school teacher. She teaches seventh grade math, math and says that, uh, you know, that's it's it's constant interaction with her students, lesson plans, you know, homework and everything. So much of that is now online. It's almost hard to remember, you know, <laughs> what it was like, you know, back when we were scrawling out equations on the back of a shovel with a piece of coal or something. I don't know. But uh, what what does the future hold? You mentioned 5G technology. Are there some cutting edge things that we should be looking toward that may um, also impact the way that the students are educated and access that information? Absolutely. The promise of 5G wireless network is immense, and this will be driving the innovation and in manufacturing, transportation, agriculture, and other industries the same way as it drives our education. But we have to realize that in order for us to keep moving in that direction, we need to make sure that our policymakers are able to give the wireless industry their required uh, spectrum. And that is only possible if Congress acts now to restore FCC's auction authority so we can safeguard our national security and make sure that we promote economic security and we keep America ahead of the global race in 5G. Is there anybody, groups or lobbyists that, that are standing in the way of that renewal of FCC authority? The Department of Defense has been one of the biggest uh, players in that uh negotiation because they do not want the FCC to auction off some of the spectrum that they want to share. Uh, and the wireless industry is fighting back the Department of Defense because they need to have their own share of the spectrum. So until uh, this uh, issue is not resolved, Congress is probably not likely to move, not move forward, given how much power the Department of Defense has in this issue. Fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us. Again, we're talking with Tamina Debozorgi. She uh, is a Young Voices. Uh, you are a innovation fellow at Young Voices and also a law student at uh, George Washington University. So great to catch up with you once again. It was great talking to you as well, Brian. Thank you for having me. 